0: first thanks thanks a lot for doing this i know that you're only doing this because you love neil so <laughs>
1: <laughs> to get uh it's one of the many reasons and yeah, yeah. And, and the ex benedict this morning were good so <laughs> thanks for the
0: other <laughs> people. so uh first can we go back in history just tell us the story of winning mavericks s- starting from starting from
1: you really want that whole story again how much yeah, time I we, really have? Do. we i don't really don't have enough
0: do. time I really do. no no i really do <laughs>
1: um well guy thanks very much for having me on the show and and neil thanks very much for having me on the show Um yeah it's um, it's been an interesting journey over the last uh almost what 15 years so yeah i mean i have been i grew up in south africa i've never been a sort of uh, professional surfer i was never really one of the greatest surfers but i think you like anything in life i think when you decide you want to do something and if you You really put your mind to it and you don't listen to what anyone else says and you believe in yourself and you take daily steps and actions to do whatever you want and you never give up you are eventually going to get there you might have a whole lot of um difficult times and and um closed doors along the way but as long as you realize that you don't sometimes you if you lock knock hard enough and you find a way through it around it or over it you're always going to get there so uh, yeah i went over to hawaii and in 99 for the first time and realised that I really wanted to become one of the best in the world and I knew it wasn't going to be an easy road but I was super passionate about the ocean and, and, and big wave surfing and I was very fortunate to grow up as the youngest of three three um, naughty boys <laughs> yeah and um, yeah I had an amazing dad who, who involved us in the ocean from a really early age so I was very in tune and, and um, immersed in the ocean from a super early age so I became very comfortable with it so. And growing up in South Africa, we are exposed to some really raw and wild elements. Um, you know, the Cape of Storms in Cape Town is is about as raw and wild as conditions as you get. And I think w- the first time I came over from from South Africa to come and surf in the Pacific, I was just blown away. Like The water was warm, the sun was shining, the waves broke in the same place, and it was just... Fewer sharks. Fewer sharks, you know, and it's just... The conditions were so much more inviting and they were so um, a lot tamer to be able to deal with and that really was super appealing because we just so used to dealing with such rugged, wild, raw conditions that everything seems a lot easier. And um, yeah, and then it was sort of just became a path that I really wanted to pursue and for the next sort of 10 years I tried to dedicate no matter where I was in the world to try and work full time to save up enough money so at the end of that year I could either leave my job or take off, you know, six weeks to try and go over to California or Hawaii to, to try and get better, learn, get more experience, become more knowledgeable and, and wiser and try and stay alive and, and try and make a, a sort of an impact on the big wave surfing scene. And it took it took a couple of years and I remember just realizing that in order to become one of the best I couldn't do what everyone else was doing because I wasn't a paid professional athlete. I couldn't stay over there for the same period of time. so. I, I needed to do things differently so I remember working out from from different aspects of all different facets of big wave surfing how I could distinguish myself from everyone else and I just looked at the physical aspect I looked at the mental aspect I looked at the equipment and then I looked at the locations and I broke it down into those sort of four four aspects of it and then I decided to try and work on each aspect to become as specific and um, and, and focus on each aspect of those to become the best I could be in each one of those four elements to be able to separate myself from everyone else. So I looked at the equipment and I was using really really small equipment. I refined that equipment. And a lot of people don't use small boards in big ways because it means you get in later and it means that you are in more way more critical situation. But I figured out that w- if I was using smaller boards, I could surf differently to everyone else. And I, if, you know, if Big Way Surfing was judged on how critical and how late you could take, a, take the drop and complete it successfully, I knew that if I, could, if I could do that, if I could use those boards successfully, I would be able to distinguish myself from everyone else, uh, else out there. But that would mean that I would have to be so confident in my physical ability so I believe that physical fitness breeds mental confidence. So I s- went about designing and developing my own version of um, training to be able to make me as as stupidly, ridiculously fit as I could be across all different elements. So I think a lot of people just, you know, in this day and age now, in whatever twenty, almost twenty twenty, you know, if there's all these big wave athletes that are now doing these apnea training courses and these Borderman courses and what have you, but you know in 2000 there wasn't anything like that that exists so my training that i developed for myself was very unique and no one was doing it i actually ended up training uh, alongside in the pool with one of the freediving world champions in south africa and one day she 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 was like oh i see you training every day um it's amazing like i'm training for the world championships and i'm training for freediving but i see you doing this underwater apnea training I've never seen anyone else do that. What, what are you training for? And I said, oh, I'm training for a big wave season. She said, wow, I've never seen any surfer ever train like you train. I said, well, this is the second time I've been at the pool today. And she's like, oh, what? <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, I, I, go, I train in the morning before work between, between five and six. And then I go to work, work a full day, and then I train after work as well. And um, I, I think what I, what I figured out from that, I was, work, I was training twice a day um six days a week and 80, 80 percent of that was pool training and and sixty percent of the the pool training i was doing was all apnea underwater training and i got to my i got to a point that when i went over in two thousand and one i i it's a very difficult um space to try and to try and put into words i got to a point where i was so fit across you know swimming running underwater training that i was just oozing confidence. I felt like I was invincible and it's a good thing and a bad thing. It has a, it has a, it's a double-edged sword because when you get into that space then you literally believe that you are Superman and you can achieve ev- anything. So you do things that you never normally would do because you're so confident within yourself that you you cannot fail. Mm-hmm. So you put yourself in places that you should never be in and because you're so confident with yourself that 99% of the time you make it out. And then if you don't, you you're so fit and and um, and you you've got such a confidence within yourself that you normally get yourself out of situations that you sh- you shouldn't either. So C-
0: can you, unless it's a secret, no, no. can you give us like the real? How many miles were you running a day how far were you swimming were you swimming sprints were you swimming long
1: distance yeah I mean it, it's such an it's such an interesting combination so I work out a program that takes me about six months to get from base fitness to to peak fitness um, if your base fitness is really good you can do it within three to four months but I basically learned like and you get so in tune with your body and so in tune with your mind that like I could have one beer at night and I could feel it in my system and I could feel it in in the in the, the the consequences on my training for the next five days onwards, and that's what like when you're so in tune with your body mm-hmm. that you can feel those kind of things and the significant impact that even just one beer would have in your system, it's quite remarkable wha- that you can notice your performance levels on that sort of scale. And I was doing yeah, I mean, uh, I think I was doing th- uh, three uh, three to five days a week. I was I was running probably f- uh, short distances like five miles kind of thing. Um, and then i uh, i was in the pool every day twice a day 6 days a week and i was i was doing at least a mile underneath the water um obviously not <laughs> not once <laughs> off but <laughs> that, that but, but i was doing a little you know i was doing a little over a mile underneath the water and then i'd do above the water training and then i had different sprint regimes that would basically mimic what would happen if i got caught inside by five a five wave set um, and then i would also mimic what would happen if I fell taking off on a wave and not get a full breath and then still get hammered by a wave and then the the multiple waves afterwards and mimic what would happen in all the different scenarios. So I basically mimicked every single worst case scenario of training at your extreme level in a capacity where you're not getting a lot of breath.
0: Don't you think that most people train for the best case? You're tr- a lot of what you just described yes. is for the worst case, right? When you fell, when you're pulled under and all that, yes. as opposed to the wave you catch and ride.
1: Well, that that you just get from experience. You, you, that, you, that comes from being out there. But how do you pre-plan for when things go right is easy because you're planning for that when you're out in the ocean. But, and all the, whatever, the 20 or 30 years of experience that you've done up to that point should trade you for that. But what gives you the confidence to be able to paddle into a wave and put yourself in harm's way and take off in a critical place, that only comes from the confidence that you have that you can get from knowing that you can sustain yourself for an extended period of time underneath the water and knowing that you will survive. And knowing that you've done absolutely everything in your physical and mental and emotional space to be ready for that situation. So I always work on a philosophy which is plan for the worst, no for the best. Okay. Because if you plan for every single worst case scenario, then you've minimised the risk and you can proceed with confidence. Okay. And then your outcome is generally so successful. And seeing, you know, that I'm still here, it means that <laughs> my, my my um my training You're regime right. worked. You're right, yes.
0: <laughs> now bring us bring us to that. That specific contest, like okay. there's like all these stories about how you know it was impossible for you to get here, and the boards were lost, and like what happened?
1: Well, I I tried to you know I try to save up to go and um, to be at that event. Uh, um, I made the top twenty four. It taken ten years to get to that point. I tried to come over for um, the time period that it was going to be to r- where they would possibly run the event over a two month period where the, the likelihood was the highest. And I'd done fundraisers fundraisers at home in order to be able to raise enough money. And you know, I think my my biggest sponsor, their donation to me going over and, and representing my country was getting given two wetsuits towards <laughs> my trip. That was, that was that's the definition of sponsorship in our country. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's pretty soul destroying. Um, so, but I think we, what, what you learn by being what I've learned by being South African is that because you have to work so hard at creating the opportunity for yourself that it makes you incredibly driven and incredibly focused. So when you do get the opportunity, you 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 put everything on the line to make it count because you know that that might be your one and only last chance. And and I th- and that's why I've always believed I always support the underdog because the underdog you Never discard the underdog because the underdog will do everything in its power to rise above its normal level and standard To be able to do things that it normally would never be able to achieve because it knows that It'll do whatever it has to to be do able to succeed. Do you think
0: that uh, too much money is worse than too little? Then?
1: Yes, definitely For sure because you don't have the you don't have the, the, the passion And you don't have the grit and the, the courage and the determination that really That really drives you when you've got everything on a golden platter it's hard to have that that same mindset where you've had to fight and scratch to be able to get that opportunity and no matter what happens you're going to give it everything you've got and you're going to show up at your best and go beyond normal and become the most extraordinary version of yourself you can be in order to ensure the best possible outcome
0: okay so now Getting to the real yes. tactic.
1: How would you get here? I mean, so yeah, so I was um, I was here for about a month, yep. um, and um, they didn't have the event, and um, I was I was trying to stay the whole time, and then my girlfriend, uh, my partner at the time, got a got diagnosed with a really hectic life-threatening illness, and I had to fly back to actually. I ended up deciding to to fly back and look after her through surgery and everything else, and that pretty much took. It was on Christmas Day that I flew back, and. I had to get on literally a find out that morning, I had to try and get on a flight that off that afternoon and in in our world that you know those tickets are really expensive and on Christmas Day it's probably the worst time you can fly home so it cost me like more than around the world ticket to be able to fly home and I spent two months looking after and it pretty much drained every single bit of money that I had in my life um, and I remember being in w- uh, one of the sales appointments I was looking after multiple different brands um, as a um sales agent at the time and i was with my assistant and we were we were selling crocs at the time don't crocs. judge me don't crocs. judge me <laughs> um but um yeah and i remember looking i remember i was speaking to a client and it was about four three days before the end of the wedding period uh, i realized that like everything that i had dreamed of this was like the last year that i decided that i was going to put everything into trying to get into the event and so if, and if it didn't happen then that was going to be it for me and I remember looking down at like my ATM bank slip underneath the table while I, we were selling to the client. And I remember l- like I was overdrawn to the absolute max across every single one of my accounts. And I had like the equivalent of 321 Rand to my name, which is the equivalent of probably about uh, $140 left to my name. I wasn't even, no, it wasn't even, I was like <laughs> less. It was like ridiculous, it was like yeah, it was like 30, $25 to my name. And I was trying to think of like how I was gonna get through the rest of the week, like, like, let, let alone the rest of the month. And that's when I got a phone call from Jeff, and he, I saw his number, and I excused myself, and uh, he said, hey, listen, I don't know if you realize there's a giant swell on the forecast. Um, is there any way you can be able to get here if we, we decide to call it? And I said, well, I'm completely broke. I have no idea how I'll make it happen, but if, you, if we call it and you think it's gonna happen, I'll find a way, and um, put down the phone. He said, "Well, you better look into start looking at flights." So I put down the phone and I apologized to my client. I said, "Sorry, I've, I've got to go, and um, just quickly fly to America." And I think he thought it was an April Fool's joke. And I said, "No, really, I've actually got to walk out now and fly to America." And um, my assistant took over. I walked downstairs, got in my car, and drove straight to the airport. And I think a lot of people don't understand, especially in this country, that you know, I'm flying from South Africa. It's probably one of the furthest places oh. in the world that you can possibly fly and um, there are only a couple of flights that are going to get you here in time if you need to be here in, in 48 hours because it can sometimes take 42 hours or so to get here and I keep I had kept my bag with my passport and all my gear in my backpack ready the whole time that I was back home, just in case that phone call happened. So my boards were in there, my wetsuits was in my car, my bag with my passport, everything was ready. So I walked downstairs, got in my car and drove straight to the airport. And while I was driving to the airport, I phoned my, my brother who was in travel, I said, please see if you can find me a, a flight that's going to get me there in time, because I'm actually on the way to the airport now. And just before I got into the airport, uh, he phoned me back and he said, you won't believe it, there's one flight that if you need to get there in the next 48 hours, that will get you there in time there's one seat left on the flight (laughs) and you have to check in within the next 25 minutes so unless you're on the way to the airport or coming into there there's no way you're going to make it and i said i'm actually just pulling into the airport right now and then i ended up um going into the airport and just grabbing my board bag and running through and it was like moses in the parting of the sea because i was like running through my people were flying everywhere trying to get out of the way of this giant coffin board bag i was dragging around with me and got to the Got to the counter and then um, phoned up Jeff, I said, hey listen, what's the story? Like, I've I've got to get on this flight, there's only one that's going to get me there in time. It's it's closing in, you know, uh, 15 minutes. There's one seat on the flight, I have have to make that call. And Jeff turned around and said, well, um, we're having a little bit of trouble making the decision this year. Um, If you phone me back in like two or three hours time, I'll be able to let you know. (laughs) Clearly that was the wrong thing to say because like, (laughs) <laughs> that was it, you know, yeah. that was, that, was that, that, like, that moment of truth and that junction that I think sometimes in, in life we all get to. And it's, it's what you do with that decision, I think, that defines you and defines a lot of the outcomes. And you, sometimes you just have to have the courage to be able to step beyond your fears and, and, and find out what lies beyond. And if you, you've worked on something for so long, I, I think I always try and look at every single situation That I need to make a decision and think to myself, if I look back on the situation in five or ten years' time, with the decision that I'm wanting to make and the choice that I'm about to make, would I ever regret the decision that I made? So I thought to myself, okay, if I I didn't make a plan and get on this flight right now and I find out in 48 hours' time that they ran the event and I'd missed that one opportunity, I would never forgive myself for the rest of my life. So I was like, okay, screw it, I'm, I'm going, no matter what, no matter what, I phoned my brother, I said, hey, listen, can you book that flight? And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, give me your card number. I said, no, no, use your <laughs> card. <laughs> and he didn't have enough money either, and I ended up borrowing money from like three different friends to be able to get the money in that moment to be able to jump on that plane and, and get that flight out. So I flew out on that flight without even knowing if the event was going to run. And while I was in the air between Joburg between Cape Town to Joburg, Joburg to Amsterdam. While I was in, in Amsterdam, I had this uh, like, this horrible epiphany where I realized that if I got to Amsterdam and found out that Jeff hadn't called the event on, I didn't even have enough money across all my different accounts to be able to change my fight, to be able to f- even fly back home. And that's when you are what, like the definition of what I call all in. <laughs> and I believe that like everything that I've that's happened in my life since that point and everything that I've been successful with has been with that sort of mindset. It's been putting everything on the line for what you believe in and the next book that I'm writing is is, is called All In um, and that's on the transatlantic and it actually comes from, um, there's another term for it which is a muck, uh, a, a monk state which is called a makshra state which means that you, are you give up and you put everything on the line for what you believe in and it's a very powerful space because you go to extraordinary lengths because you you've you've let go everything that's important to you and and you're so passionate about you what you believe in that you're prepared to die for what you believe no matter what and generally when you ever put yourself in that space you always succeed because failure is not an option Um, yeah so um, I ended up finding out when I got to Amsterdam that they called the event on and then I flew from Amsterdam to to I think it was Houston and as we're coming into Houston I had like one connection that would just get me there in time and it was the storm that was hitting the west coast causing these massive waves it caused a massive snowstorm at at Dallas and I arrived in and the the announcement was that they're going to possibly close the airport and I got into America for the first time and um, when I get into America and immigration then I get stuck in the queue for two hours and I was watching the time disappear between my flight boarding and I felt like got through immigration and I literally left my crocs right there <laughs> on, the <laughs> on the floor and, and like went across two different terminals and literally just got, as I got to the, the they're calling my name to to deplane me and as I got to the the air station she was like ah oh, Miss British, we've been waiting for you we're just about to offload you off the plane Um, And then she took my ticket and she was like, oh, oh, there's a problem with your ticket. Some of these tickets that we have from the long haul flights, they don't check you through all the way through. So there's a bit of a problem with it with the ticket. What you need to do is you need to go outside the terminal to the the external terminal um, check-in branch. You need to change your tickets (laughs) and then get another (laughs) flight out in the morning. And I was like no 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 it doesn't work like that like I have to get on this flight this is the only flight that will get me there in time for like the Olympics of big wave surfing you don't understand you have to get me on this flight and she's like no sorry there's nothing I can do about this we've seen this happen the flight is now closed there's nothing I can do about it I went down on my knees and I was like like, please you don't (laughs) understand been on this journey for the last 10 years, you have to let me on this flight. It's, uh, I don't know if you watched the movie The Terminal with Tom Hanks. If you don't let me on this flight, I'm going to be roaming your airport for the next <laughs> five years, stealing hamburgers <laughs> and cheeseburgers from you and, and, um, because I can't even fly back home. Um, and either she was scared of me or she suddenly felt sorry for me. And I think sometimes in life you, you meet these people that have had some similar experience and suddenly they click into a different gear and they realize that they need, need help and her name was Grace. Amazing grace, <laughs> <laughs> and she ended up saying, "Hold on a second, let me see what I can do." And she ran down the little tunnel, and three minutes later, she came back with a naughty grin on her face. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, "Ah, Mr. British, I remember that name. I want you to go over and do me proud. I've done something very <laughs> special for you." And she ended up giving, making a plan to put me in. On the jump seat on the, on the plane on that flight which I still don't know how that happened. Sounds a
0: little illegal. Yeah, yeah.
1: but um, somehow we, we made it work and I got on the flight and flew um, flew the, n- the next part of the route to, to San Francisco taking me like 42 hours and transfers and stuff to get there and then I arrived at like one o'clock in the morning and the event was now gonna start at, at 7 or seven thirty or whatever and I arrived and you waited the baggage carousel for your stuff to arrive and all things come and all the things go. No board. And all things come, all things go, no bags. So, you know, I learned from a guy called um, Clark Abbey in, in Hawaii. He's like, don't panic after you've panicked. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, okay, I don't have, don't have my bags. So it just has all the stuff that normal human beings have, like clothes and T-shirts and all the stuff that we normally have. But then I realized that I actually had my wetsuit and it had my two leashes, big wave leashes and, and what have you. And I was like, okay, I can I can borrow a wetsuit, I can manage it as long as my boards arrive, and we're good, you know? So I waited the baggage oversized for the stuff to come, and all the golf clubs and canoes and stuff come and go and come and go, no boards. So I went to the baggage handling guy, and I was like, please, you've got to tell me that like this big board bag is a coffin with like three fine-tuned like big wave Mavericks guns, been designed and built for this way for this location for this event that I've been trying to get into for the last 10 years they must be out there you can't lose them He's like, oh, sometimes they just don't make the connection I'm sure you can just like rent one from the beach <laughs> 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 and I was like no rent one from the beach what you're trying to say to me is like I've arrived at the show jumping Olympics and you've lost my horse and you're telling me to rent a donkey right, and right, go and compete right. that's what you're telling yeah. me you know and um, yeah I was just saying Incredible journey and then um, I ended up realizing that al- none of my equipment arrived, nothing arrived. So I literally had the shirt on my back and in jeans and a, and a warm top and that's all I had.
0: Well, and I was just about
1: <laughs> a- arrive for like the biggest event of my entire life and little did I know that it was gonna be one of the biggest days in surfing history and uh, I eventually got, um, I didn't have enough money to get a taxi so I phoned Jeff. Jeff came to pick me up, got back to his place about 2 o'clock in the morning. Slept for what seemed like minutes and got up at like 5.30, borrowed one of his boards and I had a backup wetsuit that I had, yeah, and wanted to go get some booties and leashes and stuff and all together and then went down and, yeah, I mean, that day was just, you know, I felt like I'd won the amazing race just getting <laughs> to the beach that day, you know.
0: Now, it's, it seems to me that that whole story, it contradicts what every parent would say, right? You you got to get a good night's sleep. You got to get a good breakfast. You have to have your equipment all prepared and ready. Mm. You need to be able to focus on the thing and you had none of that and you won.
1: But I so th- what's the lesson? So, th- so <laughs> the lesson is I think for the year, the two years before, I had prepared to try and um, try and make things as difficult for myself. be become accustomed to the most difficult and challenging conditions across everything that I did. I tried lots of different boards, I'd work with Jeff on one of the first um, um, computer shapes, Mm -hmm. Um, so he had my files and stuff in the system and even though the board that I borrowed wasn't my one, it was off one of my, one of the first designs and shapes that were, so I knew that the rocker was the same, I knew that the outline was roughly the same and i had been using his boards now for almost ten years so I had a really good feel for the equipment. I'd left a backup wetsuit just as as a worst-case scenario. You had backup and stuff so like and I would try to go out in it at Mavericks in in the most difficult and challenging conditions no matter what and uh, using lots of different equipment and I think again as you're talking about we were talking about earlier I think planning for the worst and hoping for the best like knowing that you prepared no matter what worst-case scenario throws at you and then and then remaining true to to what you set your mind to achieve, no matter what. And I think that well, what happened was that then I went out, and I just before we got out, w- we actually went out. I was walking through the contest area, and that massive wave hit the the, the contest whole site and washed away like I don't know a hundred odd spectators and us. Dropped all my equipment, and I had mother over one arm, two kids over the other, and it was wasn't really how you'd normally prepare <laughs> for like <laughs> the biggest event from your life, you know? It was crazy. And then when I got onto the water, I just remember putting that contest vest on, and it was like everything just went calm and went went quiet, even though there were these massive bombs detonating all around us, and the waves were breaking in places that none of us had ever experienced. I mean, they were breaking 200 to 300 yards further out than any any time we had ever been out there before. So all the lineups that, we had u- that we'd used normally to be able to line up and be in the right place for surfing these giant waves were completely irrelevant, which, you'd, you know, we had built those lineups for ourselves for over 10-15 years of surfing experience and they were all null and void because the waves were so exponentially larger than anything we'd ever paddled at that particular point. And then within the first, I got one small wave, which was, I don't know, 30, 40 foot face or whatever, it's all to the day. And then we, and then about 10 minutes into that heat, we got caught inside by, still to this day, the biggest wave that, wave that I've ever seen landed literally 10 feet in front of us. And that's the time when you go, you know, you think to yourself, like, I've done every single thing in my power to be ready for this exact moment. This is what I, this is what you've trained for. And that's not the time when you think to yourself. I shouldn't have had those, you know, ten tequilas last night. And <laughs> you know, and maybe I should have spent more time in the pool. That's that's what you've you've trained your last fifteen years for that moment.
0: And, and when you see, how big was that that wave that you got? Uh, it was at least sixty feet. That okay. landed
1: right in front of us. Yeah. So when dragged you me s- almost a mile underneath the water.
0: It dragged you almost, almost a mile. Mi- yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and I lost the ability to be able to use my arms and legs, and lost the ability to be able to even speak. So. So, like, when your body starts like shutting down all its main functions in order to survive, That's and right. all it's doing is it's limiting your y- your use of your arms and legs, and then it limits your ability to be able to speak because all it's doing is taking all its it, all all the blood from its all its extremities into protecting and looking after the heart in order to keep it keep it going, and so it's only focusing on breathing. And then, then you know you're pretty close to well, to death.
0: <laughs> so. <laughs> I can tell you when I see a six-foot wave, it scares the shit out of me, and I won't go out. Okay, so like, how are you different than most people who have that reaction? They won't go out. It's like too scary. But you, you see that as an opportunity. So how is that different? Like what? Is it mental? Is it? Are you crazy? I'm a, am I a coward? Like, what's no. the difference between you and me? No,
1: I, <laughs> I, 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 f- I find I find that it's, a, it's an interesting question, guy, and I find it fascinating because you know a lot of people look at people that are doing extreme things, and to them it seems crazy, but it's only crazy from bec- according to your frame of reference. So, it's what is your frame of reference in regarding to what is your what is normal and what is extraordinary, and what is then superpower ability, or that level of of extreme athlete that you think is crazy. But I think, you know, I never went from surfing one foot waves to 60 foot waves. It was a gradual progression of keep on incrementally pushing your boundaries and pushing your limits. And every time you got into a fearful state, you push your limit a little bit further than that. And then you got a little bit scared, but then you went back and you did it again and again until your comfort zone shifted and your new normal and your new frame of reference shifted incrementally. And if you keep on doing that over an extended period of time, suddenly no one sees the jump from one foot ways to four foot ways. All they see is you surfing 60 foot waves, and that seems crazy to them. But they've never followed the journey and seen how long it took you to get to that point and how many five foot ways and how many 10 foot ways, how many 12 foot ways, how many 15 foot ways, how many 20 foot ways and so, and so on. And I think you can apply that to literally anything. And I think all of us have fear. Fear is common to everyone. It's just how you manage that fear, how you process that fear, and how you turn adversity or challenge or fear to your advantage. If you realise that fear is one of the greatest tools to be able to harness your own personal greatest potential, focus your energy, focus your mind, um, extrapolate any no- any of your normal functions to heightened state to be able to do something that you should not normally able to achieve because you have endorphins then you have adrenaline that then harness your immense and most extraordinary power within yourself as a human being to do things that you shouldn't normally do once you learn to be able to harness that manage that process that and regulators in a very in a very systematic way then you can then you can really go beyond what most people normally don't think is possible and when you when you realize that that process puts you in a space in a a place that that allows you to do that then you you almost want to unlock that on a regular basis because it makes you makes you realize what you can achieve if you learn to be able to manage that 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 new ability most people use fear as a as something that paralyzes them not to go forward but if you use fear is an enhancer and you realize that it's actually reminding that you're on the right track and you need to keep on going forward because it's beyond your fears and beyond that comfort zone. That's where the magic happens and that's where your greatest potential lies, just beyond that fear, beyond that comfort zone and that's where you get into a state where flow is possible, where your greatest self is possible, where you evolve, where you learn, where you grow and that's, that's, that's where life happens in those moments.
0: Okay, I, I promise you that this winter <laughs> I'll go out in a six-foot wave. <laughs>
1: okay. <Good. laughs>
0: cool.
2: C- finish. Haven't finished that story.
1: What happened in the story?
2: When you, when you got dragged in and you got picked up. Oh yeah, dragged
1: on under a mile. Yeah. So I, I got. I think I had about five waves that, 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 that I had land on my head and. I literally got to the point that I hadn't. Like when people talk about not having nothing left, I don't think people really realize what that actually means. When your body starts you know, shutting down all its functions, that's when you know that you have nothing left. And I remember the last wave that went over me, I was trying to get to the surface and I couldn't get to the surface, and I finally got up. And then I could see one of the ski guard drivers coming in, one ski driver got taken out by one of the waves, and then the next wave behind, I was trying to hold my hand above the water so he could come in and get me. And I remember trying to take one more stroke to stay, keep my head above the water. And that's when I realized like my body wasn't responding at all. And it's a terrifying thing to have that sensation where you're telling your body to keep your head above the water by taking a stroke, and you're telling it to do something and it doesn't, it doesn't respond. And you feel yourself sinking underneath the water, and there's nothing you can do about it, no matter what you're telling your body to do. And I remember just thinking, okay, well, if he doesn't get me, that's I'm done. And it was literally in my hand. Apparently, there was literally just my hand was sticking out of the water. That's it. And one, uh, I think it was um, one of the rescue guys came up and grabbed my hand. Uh, Frank, I think it was Karad, pulled me out of the water straight onto the back of the sled. Next mass of white water came. Over us and I remember just being bouncing around on the back of the stage and he was still holding me on with one hand and he shouting at me hold on hold on and that was one thing I couldn't do because I couldn't even move my arms and legs and then we eventually came out of the white water, and we bounced out into the channel and we're on the way out to the channel and he was looking down at me because he could see I was just I, I was just completely there was nothing left of me and he was shouting at me do you want me to take you to the paramedics do you want me to take you to the paramedics I remember looking it up at him and trying to get out of my mouth, yes <laughs> or no, but nothing would come out. Yeah. And it's, a, it's It's quite an interesting thing that you try and understand what's happening in your system in that moment where you're telling your body to do things and they're not responding, even right down to the point that you're trying to speak and nothing comes out of your mouth. And um, we got to the back line and he was going to drop me off. Um, at the paramedic boat and what have you. And there was another set that came in and two other guys were caught inside. And I was like, uh, I just managed to get enough energy into to, to responding to him. I said, well, just drop me on the backup boards here. I'll, I'll be fine. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll come back and get you and to transfer across across. And he went off to go and save some other people. And I just remember lying on my backup board then and lying literally face down on my board with my arms hanging over, like literally face down, like, uh, like almost like a corpse. And I thought to myself, well, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm done. It's like I've come as close to drowning as a human being can come without actually blacking out completely. And then I, rem- I remember lying there just getting my breath and trying to process like how much time there was in the heat and everything else. And I was like, hold on a second. Like, and I had this flashback of a, a picture that my dad gave me at, um, that was on my wall in my room when I used to study for exams. Um, he had it in on his business um, desk um, before he passed away. And it was a picture of a Of a frog, and he's getting, the frog's getting eaten by a stork. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. And he's like halfway down the stork's throat, and he's got his little arms outside the stork's throat, and he's throttling the stork. And underneath it, it says, Never, ever, ever give up. And I remember just having like such a clear, vivid realization of that. And I'm like, You know what? Like, I'm halfway down the stork's throat. But you know what? I'm not dead yet. And I never wanna look back in ten years' time at this same situation and say I never tried. So no matter how long it's gonna take for me to paddle back out to the back line, whether I don't get another wave or not is irrelevant. But I'll do I'll take whatever it needs to take to be able to get me back out to the out back line so I'll never be able to look back and say I never tried. And it literally took me almost the r- like fifteen minutes of the rest of the heat almost to get like it was about Four and a half and a half minutes left on the heat by the time I got to the back so it took me like three times longer than normally did and I remember sitting so far wide because I knew that if if I got caught by another wave it wasn't a matter of if I might you know there might be a 15% chance that I might survive there was zero chance there was like not there wasn't 1% there wasn't 10% it was zero chance that I would survive if I got caught by another wave because I was so physically drained and um, I remember sitting there and I remember sitting up on the board seeing the guys sitting like where the waves were breaking and I looked down at my watch and there was like 4 minutes and 20 seconds left and I was like okay, well, that's done, you know, I've done. I've done everything in my power to do what I said I was going to do I'll never look back and i never tried, i made it out, you've yeah, got no interest in... jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All right, Jay Walker, get it, get it, oh, that's okay. might be NASA, is it Elon Musk telling you once to get to uh, Mars?
0: Was his <laughs> wife? Oh, she's she's <laughs> she's
1: after you. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what she might no, want. No, no, <laughs> she's
0: just scheduling in here now. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, so, so um, you back out, sitting on your board? So I was
1: sitting there and I was just waiting, and, and I was just thought, okay, well that's it. End of the day, I like I, I know that I'll never look back, and like all, everyone back home will be like, she's amazing that he even paddled back out. I think all the people that got caught inside by that set, I was the only one that ended up paddling out afterwards, and. Um, then I saw this this big set coming on the horizon and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm safe here on the channel. Everything's good. And um, the first wave came in, the second wave came in, two guys caught it, the other guys were caught inside by the next one. And then um, the last wave of the set, for like some random reason, you can call it fate, you can call it destiny, you can call it whatever you want. But it came at like 30, 40 degrees, completely different angle to all the rest of the waves. And I remember seeing this wave coming and I'm sitting like way in the channel. I'm thinking to myself, that wave is coming right towards me. But there's no way a wave can ever possibly break where I am. So I'm safe here. I'm safe. There's nothing. I don't have to worry about it. And the wave just kept on coming and getting growing and growing. And I was like, oh my God, this wave is going to possibly break. And then I thought to myself, well, all I'm going to do is I'm going to flip around my board I'm going to flop down and I'm going to take all the energy that I have and I'm just going to wait for the one perfect moment and I'm going to take all the energy I have and put it into one giant stroke. And if I catch it, I catch it. If I don't, I don't that's because that's all the energy that I have. And I waited and then suddenly the wave picked me up and I, was like, oh, I couldn't believe that it was actually looked like it was going to break. And I put all the energy, I took one stroke and still to this day, it's the only wave I've ever caught in my entire life ever like that with one stroke. And suddenly it got me in and I finally got to the bottom and because it was breaking in such deep water, it didn't break as intensely. So I managed to get up and get out into the channel and I remember pulling into the channel and just going, yeah, As the like the siren, like the siren went for the end of the heat and it was like I'd actually won the event, but I'd actually only just survived the first heat of the day. And then it was like 20 minutes later, where they like 15 minutes later, where they called, like, got into the boat, and I was just happy to, to survive, you know. And I remember them calling out the results of the heat, and they're like, oh, in first place, Carlos Burle, big world champion <laughs> from Brazil, and and second place, um, Jamie Sterling from Hawaii, and then also in third place going through to the, f- the next round, Chris burnish from surfing, I was like yes! And I was like oh no! Because <laughs> I couldn't actually fathom like that I'd actually made it through and I was actually going to have to go back out there and, <laughs> and compete, like compete in in the ways that were just getting bigger and bigger. And like they had already got to the point that they were the biggest paddling ways in the history of, of big wave surfing. So, And then during the day it just got bigger. And just trying to think the, the most challenging thing was was the next heat and trying to reset you know to let go of all those those fears that I th- that I'd had during that of what had happened in that first heat and try and literally push a reset button let go of all your fear and and then refocus on what your mission and your vision was and you know then my game plan for the rest of the, the contest became completely different it was just about it was literally about get two waves, survive, don't die, go home. Like that was that was game play, Like that was strategy. And there's you know I don't know many other events around the world across any sport where your, your, your strategy is you know don't get, get killed, don't don't <laughs> die, go home. I- I- like with all, everything attached. And that day was very unique. And I was just very fortunate that I just uh, ended up getting two really good waves in the s- in the quarters and semis. Uh, ended up getting barreled in the semifinals got me into the finals and then uh, I got into the final and the final the wind had got slightly onshore the tide had dropped it got a little rugged and even though it was bigger than anything else that anyone had ever paddled into like I'd surfed those conditions like most people go out and only surf Mavericks when it's clean and it's perfect and even if the waves are big and stuff I'd been training in like the worst conditions like I would go out there by myself when it was windy, when it was rainy, when it was cross shore, offshore, onshore. Like, there would be days mm-hmm. where like I got caught in the mist, uh, g- my board g- went around Mushroom Rock, I went down on the other way around, I almost drowned. No one else around, you know, like almost like when Jeff started so surfing it, you know. And that's why I think we had this amazing connection because I was doing things like he used to do in the old days. But I think, like we are talking about, it's about resilience and it's about building up a resilience and a mindset. To be able to be uncomfortable, and becoming so uncomfortable with the uncomfortable that you can, you can deal with change and really difficult environments so much better than anyone else because you've trained for it and you plan for it. And I think a resilience mindset is about becoming uncomfortable. I mean, coming comfortable with Uh, the uncomfortable space. You know,
0: I I would say to completely change the topic though that in entrepreneurship, ninety-nine point nine percent of founders train for when things go right you know I'm
1: for when things go hard yeah behind.
0: and it's all about scaling and going public and cashing out and you know all that nobody plans for product is late nobody's buying it We're running out of money
1: well, I find that quite interesting because in all the different businesses that I run, I always plan for every worst case. You know, try plan for every worst case scenario and think of what happens if, if things don't work out. What what is your alternative? What is your solution? How do you find another way to do this? How do you find a different way to map this? How do you market this in a different way to everyone else? The, I think
0: the interesting thing. And is you can do that
1: across everything in life yes, if you think about it.
0: Yes, I, I think it's very interesting that um, on the one hand you have to be a believer and an optimist to even try. Yeah. But then you have to flip that bit and plan for the worst, which yeah, I don't think people can do both.
1: No, yeah, I, I believe you can because I believe that there's, op- there's opportunity and adversity in everything. And you mm-hmm. look at any, you know, in that uh, new talk that I was doing about um, unlocking your superpowers, it's it's about every single great entrepreneur and every single great businessman or success story, 99.9% of them, it's a story of how about how you've learned through how you've learned and grown through your challenges, how you have turned your adversity and your greatest fears into your greatest tool and greatest superpower, yourself. And that's what separates the best of the from the rest. It's like how you, uh, how, you take how you take the feedback and the stimuli that you get that is n- negative and you flip it into a positive and how you transcend that, which makes you stronger and or y- you end up using that as your greatest tool. Now, yes.
0: switching gears. Mm. Ninety-three days, you paddle across the Atlantic. Yes. Okay? So, most people would say that is insanely impossible. So, when you think about paddling across the Atlantic by yourself, do you simply not see the impossibility of that? I Are you in mm-hmm. denial? I how does that work? Y-
1: you know, I think, that's ap- I think you couldn't have probably said it better. But the last part of it, I don't believe. So, I believe exactly as you said, it. like I just when I, I guess when I get something in my mind that I, I, I focus on, like I've gone through all the, the, the preparation and the training to be able to get to a certain point, and then I go, okay, if I can do that, that, and that, and if I've learned this, 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 from doing the 12-hour, the 24-hour record, the 24-hour tw- Guinness World Record, if I do the seven-day open ocean thing, mm. uh, trip up the west coast of, of South Africa, um, completely unsupported, unassisted, if I can do that, unsupported, unassisted, then if I can build the right craft where I, can g- where I can find solutions to the challenges that I faced on that last journey, which was, how do I avoid getting out of the sun? How do I avoid having a solution for water and food and all those kind of things and a place to be able to sleep to be able to remove myself from the really intense environment for short periods of time if I can find solutions for all of that then why would I need to go up a coastline then surely I could be self-sufficient enough to be able to cross an ocean And if i can do that i'd already started you know attaching all these projects that i did to operation smile and the lunchbox fund which was to feed kids in africa and pay for operations so i figured if i could raise enough money to be able to pay for 10 20 operations through what the stuff that i was doing and feed feeding hundreds of kids if i could build the right craft and i could take that 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 line up the coastline and String it across the Atlantic and become completely self-sufficient and, and unsupported Then I could not only change the lives of hundreds I could change the lives of like hundreds of thousands and maybe millions so And well, I think once once you get like once I like once I got got all that experience like for me It was just the next next logical step and as much as that sounds really weird to a lot of people like How does it get going from 200 miles up the coastline? go to 4,500 miles across an ocean on a craft that's not even a meter wide not even six inches above the water and is only a foot and a half longer than my normal open ocean board Well, To me I like there are some times in your life where you just you just you have a feeling and you just know no matter what anyone else says you just know that it's possible and you know you can do it no matter what anyone else says and they can try and put doubt into you, into your mind but you just I just knew it. I just knew it was possible, and I knew that I could do it, no matter what anyone said.
0: Well, I think that um, was it was meant to be in
1: to inspire hope. Well, you yeah. Know, inspire hope into what is possible if you truly believe in, in yourself. And so
0: when when someone who doesn't follow a sport like that or yes. something sees a CNN special, this guy just crossed mm-hmm. the Atlantic 93 days by himself, you know, paddling, you know, and on. They look at that and say, that's impossible, but they don't have the, as you say, yes. you started on a one-foot wave, then a four-foot yes. wave, then a six-foot wave, then a 20-foot wave, then a 60-foot wave. Yes. They only see the 60-foot wave. Yes,
1: and, and it's the, so the same as a very valuable
0: yes. lesson. Yes. You know, they didn't see that you went across the English Channel, and then you went.
1: <laughs> yeah, they didn't see the English Channel, they didn't see the 12-hour records, they didn't see the 24-hour records, they didn't see the 350Ks that I did up the wild. I l- and all that stuff that I learnt along and all the lessons that I could apply and all the foundation that I built and they didn't know that i you know, been sailing all my life and I'd done multiple transatlantic crossings on a yacht I'd surfed and sailed in Morocco I'd surfed and sailed in the Canary Islands I'd surfed and sailed in Antigua all the locations that I'd left from Morocco and I was going past the Canary Islands, so in just mm-hmm. in case there was a b- there was a there was a massive problem and I needed an exit strategy, I knew the, the different location. I knew Antigua because I'd raced and sailed there, I'd surfed there. So e- everything as part of every single cog in that in that little mechanical engine I'd experienced and I'd gone through. The only thing I hadn't done was paddle this little craft that had Never been designed before that we designed using all my sailing experience or my surfing experience or my big wave surfing experience And all my stand-up paddleboard experience across all the different journeys and put it all together to be able to create something That didn't exist that would never be done before to hopefully inspire the world and 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 change what's possible Um,
0: there's a lot of nerds who might listen to this. So I just I I just gonna give you a few topics Just tell us how you did this on this trip. Okay, Okay. so food,
1: okay freeze-dried food which was uh, uh, was a challenge because the company that I was meant to get all the freeze dried food, which I had been mapping out and planning for what, six months before, went bankrupt a week before I left. So that okay. was not sponsored. We didn't get the right the right freeze dried food that I had planned out, and we only ended up getting three different packs for 93 days. So you know, 180 different v- versions, but only two, three different packs. And the one pack was Nasi Goreng, and that gave me the run. So I could never have that. So there were only actually two different packs. Okay. Ham and leek, which was absolutely horrendous. Leeks, I hate leeks. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it was that was challenging because your body and your mind doesn't, you know, won't allow you to have the same thing even though you think that it's not a problem. But when you have it every single day, twice a day, for 93 days, your body starts revolting. And when I'm not, um, I'm not saying it's revolting because it is revolting to taste. Yes, it's revolting to taste, but your body actually will not accept it. So you have to... M- work out ways to mentally trick your mind and manipulate your mental space to be able to, to add in different things, change the color of the bag, put it in different things to be able to trick your mind so it actually will take it in. Okay, Which water. is fascinating. Uh, water, a little water desalination unit. So I had a mini water desalinator which was run off my little solar panels off the top of my craft and that ran most of my systems. So it ran my AIS, it ran my sat nav, it ran my um, little um, GPS. Machine and it charged my batteries so I could film um, GoPros and and also link up with my sat communication system so I could send my little captain's log out once a week to the world, which was my inspiring message to the world, which was sometimes very difficult to be inspiring when you felt like you were in the process of trying to die. (laughs) Watch. Watch. Um, At that time I had a a Suntu, uh, I think, Phoenix 5, which would monitor my. My, um, my stroke rate. So I worked out roughly what I was doing on a daily basis from a stroke rate and by the time I finished I think it was on 2,475,672 strokes. Okay. Yes. Cameras? Uh, I took five different GoPros and um, I used had different mounts in different locations so sometimes I put them on underneath of the craft and when I was cleaning the bottom of the craft so I could um, film myself either clean the bottom of the craft or there would be a story to tell from the shark that ate me with the GoPro <laughs> camera that would have filmed it because I believe that was like my black box. So I think that was, it's important for the story to be told no matter what so people could know what happened to me. <laughs>
0: well, wha- 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 why do you have to clean the bottom of the boat in a 90-day trip?
1: Okay, so there's what's called um, goose barnacles that, that start taking over the bottom of your craft. That Even quickly? Yeah, yeah. Within two weeks you already start growing and if you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't scrape them off that quickly, they'd start growing like a carpet. and they you know they'll slow you down by uh, almost half a knot. And if you multiply half a knot by t- by 24 hours, suddenly that no. becomes a lot and you multiply that by 93 days. I didn't actually have enough food to be able to get me through. I only had enough food to get me through 95 days. and we had already, when I had a massive leak in the craft where I thought I was going to sink halfway through the journey, I lost um, damaged about five days of food, so I was already short three days of food so already in the last week I was already on rations and I had really lost 20% of my entire body mass. So it was. Um, well,
0: this sounds like a dumb question but can't you catch fish or
1: something? Like that? Okay you know it's, it's <laughs> not a dumb question at no. all. I think that's a really clever question and most people would just assume that you do. Sashimi, yeah. Really. Uh, amazing sashimi. <laughs> um, yeah and I did take fishing gear with um, for that reason but what I learned was that my craft was so small that the, the only type of fish that I was going to catch out there unfortunately were b- really big Dorada and there were two problems with that. Um, so a Dorada is like dolphin fish or tuna. Um, they became like my companions out there. I had a, a, a family of Dorada that became like my literally like a, a wolf pack and they would swim with me every day like four of them on my left and four of them on my right and they would make eye contact with me and then they almost adopted me like the alpha male of wolf pack. So you didn't want and to eat I them. didn't want to eat them, and I you know, sort of <laughs> fell in love with them, but that was the one, w- you <laughs> Did know. Did you the, have soy sauce? The, 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 <laughs> so the funny thing is, that, <laughs> that was the one reason, but the, actually the more significant reason, which I didn't realize at the time, was that um, I got charged by multiple big great white sharks out there, and because I was so small, my craft was so small, what I realized after the first time one like breached underneath me and hit me and almost knocked me off of my craft, um, I realized that when it happened a week later when I was in when I got bumped and scraped literally five days later in the middle of the night And it's the most terrifying thing when you're lying in this tiny little pod when you're only separated by literally less than an inch of fiberglass and you hear this like bah, and scraping from the side it, you know, it makes you realize how really insignificant you are in the middle of the ocean and there's no way you can escape and it's their home And what I realized on the second time round was that I that I was obviously the right the right size and shape of a slow-moving whale calf that had maybe got separated from its mother. So I was a soft target and that was a terrible realization to come to. So every time I thought of wanting to fish the type of fish that I would that I would be catching would be really big and big Doradas are really powerful fish. One they were really my friends and two if I had to catch one and to try and get them up onto my deck and try and kill them with a massive knife the likelihood of me stabbing myself or you know, it's, you know, trying to rip the, f- the, 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 the big hook out of its mouth and getting it infected and getting you know, septicemia and all that kind of stuff became because my space on my deck was literally the size of this table, not even like a metre long by not even a metre wide. So you try and wrestle a five foot <laughs> tuna on, on a deck that size, the likelihood it's going to do damage to you. And then there's going to be blood everywhere and then you cut this beautiful fish up and you take three beautiful steaks and you eat it and then you put it into the fridge, right? No there's no fridge yeah. <laughs> and then you've got this massive bleeding fish this beautiful fish that's bleeding everywhere attracting more of the creatures that have just tried to eat you like that are bigger and longer than your craft that you're fearing for your life that you, it's going to happen again and the outcome's not going to be very positive for you because the first two were pretty as close as it comes to being eaten and breached on so by, you so know, a 25-foot great white, which so is, you know, it's a it's a very humbling experience where you have a, a great white and you're not in a cage, and you're not with a shark boat doing a shark tour, and you see the creature and then you think to yourself, okay, well, I'll just step up off my craft into the, the bigger boat, which I'll be safe on, and then you realize you th- that's really? not available and you are thousands of miles from any other human being and any other help, and that's when you realize how completely alone you, you really are. You're
0: just protein.
1: Yeah, exactly. Snack.
0: Oh, <laughs> Dave. <We'll give. laughs> um, yeah. So taking this this Maverick story, this transatlantic story, not a lot of people are going to be surfing 60-foot waves or doing this transatlantic stuff. So, what's the lessons that they can look at you and say, oh, "Shit, if you did it, I can." know I got to up my game what's the lessons of your life that you know someone working at Apple or Google or you
1: know I think it's really just simple It's like dream bigger think bigger you can do anything you set your mind to achieve and if you if you put your mind to something try and try and do something on a daily basis we only have one life so live it like you've got to find what you're passionate about and when you find out what you're passionate about then work at it and give it everything you've got and when you do that, then you become really great at it. And when you become really great at it and you're passionate about it, then you have a battery pack that doesn't run flat. So you put in more time and energy into until you become extraordinary. When you become extraordinary, then it's your duty to be able to give back and help others. And I believe that we can all do and be, f- become far greater than we ever imagined. And I think our only thing that's holding our back, our ourselves back is ourself. And our belief in ourselves that we can actually, we can create and we can blueprint our life in whatever way we imagine it to be, and if we believe in it and we have the courage to be able to follow it, that we can we can achieve literally a limitl- uh, limitless potential of whatever we set our mind to. You can literally blueprint your life and then God and create it. And I believe that because, like, I, I wrote the I wrote the captain's log for finishing the transatlantic five days before I did it because we were in like a hectic storm. I wasn't gonna have time to be able to ride. It was just like I was trying to get there. I knew that if I missed an island, I was gonna m- I was gonna miss the entire Caribbean island chain and end up in Venezuela. I didn't have a visa. I didn't <laughs> have enough food to get there. It was gonna take another three weeks. I, like, I was probably gonna die if I missed it. So I had to get there. So I wrote the captain's log for me finishing on that, that day in Antigua. And it was exactly how it happened exactly down to every single detail that I wrote in the captain's log of that finishing day. Why? Because I'd watched that movie thousands of times in my mind of what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like, what it it was going to taste like, what it was going to smell like. I could see the people's faces. I could see the seagulls flying. I could watch that movie in 4k, vivid HD, (laughs) like it had already happened because in my mind it had already happened. All I was doing was just pulling it into reality. And you can do that for everything. That's why people go, oh, gee, oh, you've done surfing and you've done now this big thing. Because you can. You don't have to just be good at one thing. You can be good at multiple different things. So whatever you set your mind to achieve. And you can talk about a 10,000-hour rule or whatever, and it is, but you have to become so consumed and so passionate in what you wanting to achieve that you, it's real. And the mind doesn't know the difference between what you create in your own mental space to actually what is reality and you can fool it into to be able to creating the reality before it exists and that's how every idea is brought into reality. It's just having the courage to be able to follow that and then taking every single step and every single strategic choice you make that will help you get there and then you use your RAS which as you know is your reticular activating system which is like your mind's filter that helps you bring in everything that you need in order to be able to make that happen. And as soon as you understand how to use that, then you can manipulate that and supersize it and amplify tenfold. So everything you need to be able to get to to achieving what you want to do will come into your life because you strategically are bringing it in in your subconscious and your, and your conscious mind until it, it becomes your reality and you're living it before it even happens and then all you're doing is you bring it into reality. And I think that's what you do on so everything.
0: So in short, it's all mental.
1: 90% of it's mental.
0: What's the other 10?
1: Passion, grit, courage purpose. I think when you're driven... I, I think what I've realized from the journey that I've just done is that when you're, when you're driven by passion and powered by a purpose greater than yourself, then it'll help you overcome any obstacle and challenge and help you even achieve the seemingly impossible. And y- we all have. We all have our own storms to face in life. We all have our own challenges to face. And It's just, you know... If you take daily steps and actions, you believe in yourself. And you never ever give up. You can literally achieve anything, <laughs> even the seemingly impossible. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> Got any other questions? Good. It's fantastic. Good. Thank you so much. Oh thank you. God. Thank you. Listen to this next time I go out surfing with Neil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think you know the key is tr- to to try and be purpose driven. Find what, find you know. There's so many people out there in life that 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 aren't passionate about what they doing on a day-to-day basis. I, you know? I,
2: have, one, I have one question. Can I ask? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, th- this, I'm, talking, I'm going to go back to rugby in South Africa. Yeah. And uh, when Nelson Mandela, I mean, I just watched the movie Inviticus again. Yes. When Nelson Mandela became president and the, the South African rugby team changed the course of, helped change the course of South Africa mm. at that time. What does this year's win for South African rugby team mean to the South African population? Um, obviously, it's different than it was before because it was just after apartheid. What is it, what does it mean to the to the country? How it, how does how is your country seeing that victory?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question. I think there are a lot, there are a lot of similarities actually across across this this victory and the one in ninety five because the, the country, even though it's gone through an incredible transformation over the last um, you know fifteen odd years, I think it in the last two years it's gone through some really difficult times and it's had a really um, a really challenging president in the past and we've only just transitioned through that but there's a lot of difficulty and challenge in the country at the moment and I think sport has a way of unifying uh, a community a country and a nation and I think this this year was an example of that because we had Sia Khaleesi as the, as the, the captain. Um, I've been very fortunate to to be on a couple of TV shows with Sia and he's an incredible individual um, he's come from a really difficult and challenging background and I think like as we're talking about how I rose up and ended up being successful. I think Sia Khaleesi is an an incredible um, story of that even amplified even further because he grew up you know in the townships um, where he didn't he went to school he didn't have shoes on his feet he was worried about whether he was going to have a meal at night you know their family never had a television and couldn't afford even almost a roof over their, their head and he has gone on to become the first ever black captain of the most prestigious sporting team in, in South Africa and gone on to lead the country um, and the 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 team on to winning the World Cup um, against all odds as the underdog of after getting beaten by New Zealand in the in the first round. And I think that's an incredible transformational story. And it's amazing how that win has unified and helped unify our nation and and got the whole country to, to not worry about everything else that's happening and just bring everybody together and and, and celebrate uh, the rainbow nation which nelson mandela really was his vision and it's incredible what what sport can really do and how it can bring hope and inspire positive change in in the world and and i believe that uh, that's what we do through a lot of the stuff we do
2: did, did your country get behind you i mean you did, did, did uh, stand up paddleboard and stuff because it's not as big as rugby is down there did your, your
1: country, your nation, get behind you. And, or yeah, were I they aware of it when you? Oh well, he got when two free wets. I got two free wets. Oh, yeah, I know they. Shit, yeah. I could have got. <laughs> <two free wetses. laughs> yeah, I think you know they did, but I think not on the same level. You know, rugby in our country is uh, is the uh, is the first first most prominent sport in the country. And yes, you know, I, I think what uh, what I found amazing about the transatlantic journey was that you know when I left, ninety nine percent of the entire planet thought that I wouldn't even get you know make two days you know I think the two th- days well the, the the world record at the time was two hundred two hundred and forty three 243 kilometers at the time and I did you know 7,500 so it's like basically what? like so it's like the only comparison was someone like that someone trying to get to base camp you know, know. And, and and died and there was a guy called Nicolas Giorosi from France who who tried to do the transatlantic and he wanted to start from he started from the Verde Islands, which was another 1,500 kilometres further south, about eight months before me, on a very similar sort of design craft, and he only lasted 17 hours. What?
2: I, I, yeah. I talked what? To him on the And he had week. to get. He I, had to. He I, had I had interviewed to you. Yeah. On the phone, I don't know what it was, how he did it forget. But I'm thinking to myself after that was done with that phone call with you. That's probably the last time to talk to
0: that guy. Wait, wait, wait! How how can you give up after seventeen hours? I didn't give up. No, he no, no. no, the, he did. the French no, the guy. No, the
1: French guy didn't give up. He, oh. he he went out and he he got um he had a problem with one of his steering his main steering system. He got caught and broadsided by by a way. The craft turned upside down and had a leak in in the oh, cabin. Okay. And <laughs> they the couldn't couldn't fix it. Couldn't write it properly and um, ended up. Um, very fortunate that he pulled the, the PERB that he had and he was close enough still from the Verd Islands that they could come out and rescue him. And they nearly, they nearly, li- like he nearly died because they couldn't find him. And they only found him, the, the rescue team called it called off the search just on dusk and they were on their way back to the harbor and they almost ran him over. He was clinging onto the side of the craft, wow. hypothermic, and, and almost died. So, wow. yeah, I mean, it, it just. It just shows like that that was the only closest comparison so it made you, it made us realize like how how challenging it was. You know, <laughs> so the delta was
0: 93 days and 17 yeah. hours? Yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, you know I, I, I try and build in a, a backup of a backup of a backup of every major system and I always you know I'd spend six months or so mentally working with a mental coach and working through every single scenario how it would how would it, how it would look how it would feel how it would would be in my mind. So when every single situation happened, I wasn't in a reactive state. I was already, I was in a very proactive state. I knew exactly what the different options were, how I could apply them and how I would feel. So I was very, very proactive in a very empowered state to be able to make the right decisions to ensure that I could get through it. Because what I learned out there was that if you didn't deal with every single situation as a As a stringent matter of urgency, everything, like all the levels, would start stacking. And as soon as if you didn't deal with a a challenge and an obstacle in with immediate urgency, then they would stack uncontrollably, and you wouldn't be able to actually then um, be able to pull them off. (laughs) Yeah, I mean there were, you know, that there were so many challenging, different experiences from the giant squid that almost dragged me under the ocean, from the multiple different super tankers that nearly ran me flat, to this main. Steering system r- like f- failing and having to try and create new ones, almost getting smashed up against the cliffs of the uh, on on the Canary Islands, to like having massive leaks in the craft where I thought I was going to sink, and then almost missing the island in the end. And, and yeah, it was just it was just people thought I got bored out there, but i never had a chance to get bored <laughs> because there were just so many life-threatening <laughs> issues trying to try and deal with on a day-to-day basis and try and figure out and find solutions to the problems. That you know, I, ca- I you know, I mean, uh, as you know, like I, I speak for a living all around the world, and it's like I can speak on every single subject matter now because the ocean is like life on steroids in hyperdrive. So if you can survive out there for one day or two days, you can survive in life no problem. So you know, you can sp- I can speak on risk management, I can speak on fear management, I can speak on endurance, you can speak on, on overcoming obstacles, change, challenge, you know, achieving possible. I'm impossible. exhausted just recording. this. <laughs> 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 But I've always find it amazing how many similarities there are to to doing these kind of things to so many different aspects of life, you know, it's Wow. It's amazing. So wow, this
0: is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank wow. you,
1: guy. All right. I'm looking forward to my well, interview yeah. with you so yeah, I can grill no you on a whole you lot of different be, questions. But
0: my interview, when you interview me, it's not going to be as good as when I interview
1: you. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I've <laughs> got some pretty sneaky <laughs> questions up my sleeve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And um, okay. yeah, any time you want to come out of Mavericks, I've, um, I've, I've got a backup board for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's just go to the six foot wave before we go to the 60 foot wave. Okay.
1: Um, no worries. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, no worries. I, I hope that was helpful and insightful. Oh, and fantastic. Yes. And I'm looking forward to um, the film coming out at the beginning of next <laughs> year, which is called Last Known Coordinates, um, which I filmed pretty much most of it going across the Atlantic. Yeah. And um, uh, I think it's g- like a combination between Castaway and Free Solo. It's <laughs> you know, pretty much a, g- a good similarity. Huh. Yeah, and then um, the next project we're working on for 2021, 20, 2022, and twenty three, which will go around the world completely powered by nature and, and hopefully impact on the lives of 300,000 to 300 million people. It all depends on. So, this is Greta Thornburg
0: on steroids.
1: Ah, you know, it all ties into the 17 SDGs and it all highlights um, 17 of the most um, endangered species and you 17 are the most incredible athletes that all collaborate towards one goal and mission and we will plant a million trees and and, um, build 17 schools Mm. and hopefully be an example to the world of what's possible if you set your mind and collaborate for success. Thank you very much. Thank you. Guy, always a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) You're a legend. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) You're the legend.
0: I just work for Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well amazing thing is I was using most of, I was using all the Apple products along the journey. Oh you were using eleven inch eleven inch uh, Mac and I was using two iPhones. One iPhone was a backup of the other iPhone for a communication device which Bluetooth to my little uh, satellite dish. And then my everyday I was I was doing updates on the on the the weather and the, the routing on my on my on my Mac. Huh. And I was charging it all through solar really yeah i mean that's couldn't you couldn't get more of a, a better story of of using um tools for innovation right? to 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 create impact you only yeah. took one man i only took 11 inch 11 inch air was incredible it was it survives everything the funny thing that i found interesting was that all the cables just got eaten <laughs> like mm-hmm. i i took i took five cables yeah. five phone charging cables I was i was on the last one by the time i got there because the salt the just salt, the salt just eats everything. Huh. It's fascinating, but the the devices were like a charm. Huh. So they doubled up as my music and my like I took a lot of whole like a whole lot of um, little audio programs that that would get me through different parts of the journey and but yeah. What
0: what does Chris Burdish listen to?
1: Huh? Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Rock on, <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit of everything actually. Yeah, and yeah, right from right from orchestral to classic to rock to alternative to country to yeah. a little
0: bit of everything. Yeah. Were you, you you were paneling at night, resting during the day.
1: Uh, no, I, I did it. So I had a, a sort of a regime which was four hours on, two hours off. But I know ne- you never really. So in that hour that you have off, like, you, well, let's say two hours of that. Of the two hours, one hour goes to navigation, solving problems, uh-huh. um, dealing with challenges, checking your navigation, and the other hour goes to um, eating, prepping your next meal, pre- prepping your next um, um, hydration pack, and, your and then making water and everything else. So there was never a time where I slept for more than an hour and 25 minutes when things were good. And then For 93 th- days? Yeah, and then when things were really bad I never slept for more than four and a half to nine minutes because I was getting semi-inverted by waves. that. Was, this,
2: was the shark incident the worst Moment?
1: Uh, that and the, the, the squid that uh, got caught in my parachute anchor which was terrifying because I thought I was going to get pulled under with How big was the a a giant squid? I didn't see it, but I could like it was the only creature that can do that besides a whale because, but a whale will swim in a certain way so like I know whales I've been swimming them all my life and right. the way that I was getting pulled in like a jerking way and I was getting pulled through the top, I was in the middle of like the worst storm that I had on the entire journey so I was getting pulled th- right through the top of like five meter waves in in 14 to 45 knots of wind which is one down from a full-blown like yeah. category one hurricane and I was getting pulled against the conditions at 1.5 knots through the conditions which shouldn't be, that shouldn't be possible. Pa-
2: a parachute
1: An- anchor? Yeah so I had a parachute anchor out and, yeah. and, I, and I was in my little cabin I could see myself just sheets of water going over the cabin as I was getting like dragged through the top of these waves and I was like that shouldn't be possible I should be going with the conditions and when I figured it out I, I managed to get my little sat- satellite phone on and managed to send through the through the actual thing I sent a message to my routing and forecasting guy in Scotland he's done a couple of transit I was like this is what's happening I'm in the middle of a fucking massive storm I'm just trying to survive the conditions have got even worse but this is what's happening. I'm going forward into the conditions that, that shouldn't be possible. I've narrowed it down to only two different things that it can possibly be, but it's so far fetched that I need someone to actually confirm what I'm thinking because I think I'm going fucking nuts. <laughs> and about four and, half, four and a half minutes later, I got a, the most terrifying digital message back on any device that I've ever received, which was like, Chris, you've said, Chris, you either caught on a giant whale or a giant squid that's caught in your parachute anchor that's gonna drag you under. I suggest you take immediate evasive action. Otherwise it's gonna drag you and the craft down with it. So I managed to tie it, like time it so the next wave went over. I got into all my safety gear and everything on fire with again. So I've got my big um, deck knife out and I timed it, got out. And as I got out I managed to put my my leash on, like big wave leash which was attached to the other part of the, the craft and to to my um, harness. And as I cut the line I, I, I was because everything was happening so fast, I didn't have time to think through. Because there was no manual that said you, can <laughs> you get pulled in under the waves <laughs> by a yeah, jump you know. Um, <laughs> so I managed to like cut the line, and as I cut the line, the other back half of the line, which goes to the other half of the, the parachute anchor, goes around to the, the, the stern of the craft. So the line, the load of, the, of the, the line getting cut, spun the craft around and flipped it upside down, and then I was. Obviously, attached through my leash and my safety line. So then I got thrown overboard. I got it, and then I got taken underneath the craft. And when it spun around, every the, all the lines went around. So then I got caught underneath the craft in the water at like two o'clock in the morning in 40 to 50 knots of wind in five to seven meter seas like, terrifying, like the most terrifying. Like conditions you can imagine, now I'm stuck getting dragged underneath the water. The one line went around my centerboard, wrapped around me underneath the water. So now I'm trapped underneath the water in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night. And I'm somehow I still had my knife in my hand and I remember trying to cut the line from un- in between myself. And as I cut the line, I just heard this like Zzz! And there was a line like cutting through my finger, which cut through like almost right down to the bone to free myself. And thank goodness my one safety snapped and my big wave leash engaged. And I pulled myself back up and I remember looking down I actually thought my finger had been ripped off. And thank goodness I hadn't actually taken my, um, my gloves off and I, ha- I had wrapped every single one of my fingers like a boxer with that like oxide tape to stop the blisters. And if it wasn't for that, I would have probably either lost my finger or it would have gone right down to the bone on both sides. But I hadn't mm-hmm. taken my gloves off in three and a half weeks. I hadn't taken them off once and that's probably what saved me. Yeah. So and you have
2: the boat write it by itself? Yeah, I mean write it by itself. And, and so all your computer stuff and everything else? It was,
1: I lo- I'd locked my hatch, that was like, if, you, if, you, if I hadn't locked my hatch that would have been game over. And, and, and it's the vigilance, it's the vigilance and the, the routine to ensure that you never ever let your guard down with that kind of thing. Because if, if I'd, at any particular point, if I'd left my hatch open and I got caught by a wave sideways, game over. And when you get fatigued and when you get tired that's the first thing that you do you get careless with little things in you if you get careless you're done I realized that if I got separate like that's why I had a backup of a backup of backup like even my my harness that I had was a climbing harness that I had a that I had a tether that was going from the, the deck of the craft to my harness which had a braking strain of like five tons then I had another line that went from my steering system which went up to my harness so when I fell overboard it would pull the the steering system right so the craft would turn up into the wind and then if those two snapped in my big wave leash would engage and that's something that I've been using all my life which had never let me down and two of those things had snapped once during the storm and my other one engaged and I realized that if any time the wind was above 12 knots which was 90% of the time if I got separated from my craft at any particular time the chance of me being able to swim back to be able to get to it was zero right. not five percent not ten percent separate from the cross and you're dead game over like no percentage ratio can help you like you're done and that's like that's pretty scary when you if you figure out you get it wrong you die simple done where, over. game over
2: where, where is the pal? where is that PAL board
1: now um it's based in the uk in storage so uh, sure. i'm hoping that maybe when the film comes out next year i might sell it to try and recoup some of the money that i spent <laughs> on remortgage my house to be able to get that back <laughs> Maybe I can get my house back.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, but you should that belongs for you. Yeah. So, wow. anyway. Yeah, there's some cool stories, but I you'll have to wait. I
2: can only handle. I can only handle talking to him once a year. I gotta <laughs> take
0: a
1: nap now. <laughs> that means yeah, you go in a museum. It should. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So we'll, yeah, we'll see. I'll see Smithsonian.
0: We'll put it in pono. <laughs> we'll
1: yeah. Yeah. So surf city sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <Surf> city sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> my buddy's sandwich. The he was surf- listening too. Surf City wow. sandwich, yeah.
2: But you know, there's certain people. I think there's certain people like yourself. I mean, I, I was just, mm. I was, I was, and a friend of mine, um, Kim Rutherford. She swam from, you know, it was four people yeah. swam the Monterey Bay. Yeah. Four. Wow. All of them are women, no men. Wow. And she swam from, she swam from Monterey backwards, you know, against the current. Took sure. Twenty-seven hours. But that gal that just recently swam the English Channel. Yes. Did you see that? No. Four. T- she swam it four times.
1: Oh my gosh. Why we're stopping? That's incredible.
2: There's people, certain people like yourself that have yeah. that,
1: that
2: higher. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You, you can be yeah, your, but you, you, you have that in your game. game. You have that yeah, in your, your game. game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Guy. I don't have yeah. that in my game. Yeah. I don't have, I don't have, I
0: don't that, have that in my game. But but <laughs> but, uh, what
2: but game? Uh, are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> but, like, there's certain people that you know. I think there's been they help the people
1: below them. they help the the pe- those people help people below them. But I think, you know, once, once people know something's possible, then uh, then everything just extrapolates well, very quickly. Mile, right? Yeah, four minute miles, exactly. But with Bannister, they didn't think it was possible.
2: Someone just broke the two-hour mark in a marathon. Yes,
1: in the marathon, which they didn't believe was, was possible. Was but I think, like, you're asking, like, what can people take away from what we're we talking about? And I think what I've learned through all the different things that I've done is that, like, if you break whatever whatever objective you have, whether it be a goal, whether it be in sport or whether it be in life, if you break it down into little bite-sized chunks and you just focus on whether it be like, I always say like break it down like one stroke at a time. Like, you know, you're looking like, how am I going to get that 7,500 kilometers away? There's no way I can do that. That's impossible. Like even in my head, I was like, oh my God. But if you just break it down into little and you just like, I can, can I take the next stroke? Yeah, I can do that. I can, so. I got to the point after that first three and a half weeks where I was like, you know, it, how, how am I going? How am I if I, if this is what it took to get me through three and a half weeks to just get to past the Canary Islands, how the hell am I going to survive even getting to halfway? And I just broke it down into like manageable bite-sized chunks, and I was just like if I can do that, then if I can get to there, then I can get to there, and if I can get to there, then I can get to there. And if you break it down like that, then I think what I. W- the, you can apply this kind of thing to everything in life that if you set yourself a goal and you know that every single day if you wake up and you take daily steps and action towards that goal no matter how many obstacles and challenges you get that that will come up in your day and they will there'll be many and there will be there will be difficult but if you know that every single time when you hit an obstacle you have the right mindset when you go backwards you don't go I failed you just say what can I learn from that experience that will make me wiser and be a foundation block that I can remove that and go, okay, this didn't work. How c- I'm going to replace that with another building block and keep on moving forward. And as long as you keep on doing that and you never, ever give up, you will eventually get your goal. And I think most people never realize that they'll always get to their goal. The only thing that will stop them from getting there is if they give up and they stop trying. And if you can apply that principle to everything in life, you will always get to wherever you set your mind to achieve, and if you knew, if every single person that set a goal for themselves realized that, one simple principle, then they would never ever have an excuse not to get to that goal. Can I ask
2: one more thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the thing about, one thing I, I admire about Guy, and love about Guy, is <laughs> he's a great father, he's a great dad, and you know, you just, you can see it.
1: So that's why I'm going to do the podcast on, on that, because I need to, I need to work on that side. Your
2: with your father. Yes. Guy, what who your father
1: was and, and what happened yeah my dad was an amazing waterman and he was an incredible inspiration to me he died when I was like 21 I was the only one that was there when it happened I ended up having to try and res- resuscitate him and it unfortunately it in the water? no um, I've resuscitated a couple people in the water but that was actually they' all they're all okay but um, unfortunately it wasn't my dad had a massive heart attack and I wasn't there I bring him back to life but I think what I learned from that is that like you know you've got to learn to let go of things in life and um, and 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 take the positive from the negative, and and how can you use those kind of experiences to empower you? And he was an incredible human being, and he was quite a groundbreaker in multiple different areas. He built the first ever catamaran in South Africa. He skied for Britain and South Africa, and know, yeah, he was a groundbreaker. And I think he was just he was had a he always like you can do whatever you set yeah. your mind to achieve. And I think as long as you as a I, I think as a as a father always. Or as a family unit, you're always there and you always support your your kids through everything, everything that they that they do, and and make them believe in themselves that they can do anything that they want, and the sky is not the limit. They can you can do anything you want, and you always support them. It might not be the right path that you intended for them, but as long as they they're following their passions and they're passionate about what they do, they'll keep themselves out of trouble and they'll be more purpose-driven individuals. And I think that l- in life we need more purpose-driven individuals that are gonna. Make an impact. are going to help change the world. You should know that. You've done exactly the same in your field.
0: My kids are going to say, "Well, my father surfed 38,
1: <laughs>
0: six foot waves."
1: That's pretty good. <laughs> That's better than most. Most people that have only surfed one to two foot waves. So yeah. Neil Guy, thanks yeah. very much for having me on your your shows, That's fantastic. and I hope it was insightful. So you, you want to take it to the SFO? Sorry,
0: you want to take it to the airport?
1: Yeah, that'd be yeah? great.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: Did you find that interesting?